0: Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is a message from the Emergency Stuffed Crust Warning System. Cheese! little caesar's extra most bestest pizza now has three feet of cheese stuffed in the crust for just nine bucks i repeat it has three feet of cheese stuffed in the crust cheese that concludes the message from the emergency stuffed crust warning system get a large little caesar's extra most bestest pepperoni stuffed crust pizza for nine dollars top four national pizza chains extra most bestest pizza versus large round one topping pepperoni pizza everyday standard menu prices three feet of cheese before cooking at participating locations plus tax
1: pizza pizza this is the Gator Nation Football
2: Podcast, powered by Campus Insiders with your hosts Alan Williams and James DiVergilio. This place is an insane
3: asylum in the old
1: time. Oh, now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back, Gator Nation, to the podcast. My name is Alan Williams. Right here next to James DiVirgilio. James, 30 in a row. How are you feeling? I feel good. I mean, I feel great, obviously, coming
2: into the week. Whew, there were a lot of questions that we I raised. I was nervous. There were a lot of questions we raised in the podcast. I had given Kentucky a 40% chance to win the game, and I thought the game could have potentially been testy. So coming out of it and sitting here in this seat now on Monday and processing it, probably one of the better Gator football games in in the recent era with regards to a complete football game. It was an utter demolition of. Uh, very exciting to watch, fun, well-played football game across the board. It's hard not to sit here and feel great about where we are, given how I felt last week and how we played in the first game. So I feel feel very excited to watch more from this football team.
1: Yeah, I'm really pumped. Uh, This is exactly what I wanted from this game. We'll get into maybe some context of Kentucky about, you know, they're not a world-class team, but they're an SEC opponent. And I love the way we play. I think we did exactly what we wanted to. Then we crushed them. I mean, they looked like a Division Two team going up against us, especially their offense versus our defense. Total annihilation. That was really fun to be in the swamp. I mean, we haven't kicked anybody's butt like that in a long time. Where you know they're an inferior opponent and we need to really put it on them. I mean, we've done it a few times, but that was a really pleasing result. Um, let's jump right in and talk about the offense. What did you appreciate about it? Everything. We had highlighted
2: specifically the offensive line and the quarterback play coming into this week. In the UMass game, we had mentioned that Luke Del Rio threw a lot of flat routes, threw a lot of check down routes, uh, didn't complete any vertical passes, and that we thought Kentucky was going to come out in essentially a cover two situation where they were going to really make us throw the ball deep into the outside. That's precisely what they did. And the beauty of Jim McElwain is an offensive mind is in the second drive after we'd missed that field goal, we basically ran the ball 85% of the time to pull Kentucky out of that cover two shell defense. Uh, There were not a lot of guys open early on in the game, and that was definitely Kentucky's game plan. Take away the flat throws, take away the running backs coming out of the backfield, force Florida to drive the ball down the field. We do that, and we score a touchdown. We get the ball back. They come up in a cover one high, man-to-man on the outside, and they say, okay, we don't think that, that Del Rio can complete this kind of pass. And then bingo, you get the Callaway touchdown. So that span of five minutes of football time was a very encouraging span because you essentially dominated them in one phase and then immediately quick-scored them in the other one. When they had made their adjustment, you were ready for it. You hit them. And then that basically left Mark Stoops in Kentucky, I think, in a position of, we are in trouble. Yeah. If we're giving up five yards to carry on the run and you're going to bomb us over the top and we come down and play you man-to-man, there's not a lot left for us to do with a, with a very rookie and, and inexperienced defense. It's not going to show you a lot of front. So very encouraging to watch the offensive progression from UMass
1: this week. I loved it. I think that stretch of play, like you said, was huge for this team and their confidence that they can put the ball in the air and make big plays happen. we saw that almost that exact same play the previous week in, you know, Del Rio overthrew him by a little bit and, This week, they hit that touchdown, and it was rolling. Uh, I don't think they ever looked back. They felt confident. Um, The offensive line took steps. Uh, And, you know, the thing that looked the best to me were our running backs. They didn't really show me as much as I wanted wanted them to the previous week, and that was probably mostly because of the offensive line. But some of those guys looked excellent. Uh, Two big ones for me, Mark Thompson— Not big statistics, but he picked up some huge yardage first in key situations. There was a third down where he kept moving. looked like he was going to get stopped in the backfield and just kept his feet alive, moved some piles. And, of course, the one everyone was talking about, the Michael Pirine, who had an incredible burst. looked like he was shot out of a cannon on that little screenplay. Great vision and burst through the hole. He looked excellent. What did you think about
2: our running backs very very good and i think that came primarily from the offensive line. You had you had Fred Johnson out with an injury and in comes Juwan Taylor. And uh we know that Luke Del Rio loves Juwan Taylor after the post game quotes about how he's the, the great wall of uh Wani, as he calls him. And he had a huge game for us. So there were they were really positive push all throughout the game. Very very few missed assignments. martez Avi played really well and behind those behind those sets, behind those twin set, uh, the twin tight end sets. A ton of production. Uh, you had, you had LaMichael running at 17 carries for 105 yards for a ridiculous 6.2 average. A lot of that done in the fourth quarter. A lot of that done against Kentucky backups. But he played early on, as did all the other running backs go. So you had you know numbers across the board were nice. Thompson went 15 for 59. You had Scarlett go 9 for 43. And Cronkite go 5 for 29. So everybody was, was successful. In fact, Thompson was the least successful on a yards per carry. Load, but that's primarily because he's handling those, those heavy carries in the short yarded situation so no fumbles clean play very good job in pass protection I thought they played a very complete game as a running back unit anytime you can you can pass block you can run well and you can keep the ball off the ground you're having success couple that with uh the you know over 200 rushing yards we had that's a great day even if it was against a super porous Kentucky defense we did what we, we should have done which was nice. It's the first
1: time that's happened in a long time for a Gator offense. And Del Rio looked great. I thought he seemed, you know, still in command of the game, which I, I appreciated him about it in UMass, you know, that he looked in control, didn't look like the moment was too big for him. But I think learned from uh, the previous week and some of the things he needed to improve on. He still got some more improvement, and we'll talk about that. But I I liked how he was continuing to take what Kentucky was giving him, that he knows how to put the ball downfield in those certain situations. And, yeah, great effort from him. Uh, you know, I was pleased with his performance. You know, the offense seemed like those guys respond to him. He moves them in and out of the huddle gets the ball down the field. Uh, so really impressed with his performance. Yeah. Good point. Uh, One thing we didn't have last year at all, even when Will Greer
2: was the quarterback was, was the leader of that team was Jake McGee on offense. It's well documented that he was sort of the one lining people up, getting people in and out. It's clear this year that Luke Del Rio has command of the personnel. And you can see how they smoothly move in and out of the huddle. And that's an often underrated component of a quarterback. And Luke DeRio does not have a lot of experience. So that goes to show you for a guy that has played hardly any games in his career, to be able to command a huddle the way he does, organize an offense, get in and out of the plays correctly with plenty of time on the play clock. That's a very important thing for a guy who kind of by definition has to be more of a game manager than maybe a guy with a sky-high NFL-style ceiling. And so, so great job. There, and, and another little stat pack number that's fun, he's the first 300-yard passer since Tyler Murphy. That's kind of a weird thing, Tyler Murphy being the last 300-yard passer. Uh, first time the Gators have gotten 570-plus yards since 2004 wow. in an SEC game. That's in, that's 12 years. That's, that's incredible. 2004, I and mean, that's a lot of yards. And, and like we said coming into the game, Kentucky's defense is really, really bad. So we'll talk about whether or not this means something. But regardless... Great all-around day, and probably the only guy who didn't have a phenomenal day was Panero. But outside of that, it's hard to find anyone who didn't play really, really well in that game. And, that, and the coaches have to be ecstatic from what they saw on film. Very few errors of any kind.
1: Yeah, great job by them, uh, You know, for the most part, keeping things clean. Only one turnover, so that was encouraging as well. Let's jump over to the defensive side of the ball. And the question I have is, how good can this defense be?
2: They could be historically good. You know, we said last week coming into the game that, that that I I said that my excitement level was a ten, and I thought they could be special. And Kentucky had an offense coming into the game that I said could could move. They could they could they could move the ball on us. They threw for three hundred twenty three yards against a a good bowl team in Southern Miss. They had a quarterback that, that drew Barker that was coming off of a, a year in which he had learned a lot. People were excited about and him. And they were excited about him. Um, there was a lot of reason to think Kentucky could oppose the challenge. And the fact that he finished 2-for-10 10 with 10 yards passing. 10 passing yards. Is is literally unbelievable. They finished the game with 55 yards passing, Kentucky did, which came on a late pass that meant nothing from Fluky a backup on a, on a backup on backup situation where we busted the coverage. But unreal. I thought it was one of the most dominating defensive performances I had ever seen. We gave up two plays that accounted for more than two-thirds of their yardage. Uh, one at the end of the half, which meant nothing. And as a college team, to be able to play so much cover one is insane. I mean, half of Kentucky's passing plays, were playing a legitimate cover one bump and run, where you have Wilson and Tabor, and Alone you have Marcel covering the nickel, and then you have a single high safety in Marcus May. And I thought they did a great job. You know, fans of the show know that we pick on Marcus May and his pass coverage. But Marcus May, not one time that entire game, had to come down and guard anyone within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. He consistently was the high safety, which he's much better at than when he has to come down in the box and guard someone. Just a phenomenal plan by Jeff Collins. I mean, what an incredible defensive performance. It felt like an NFL team playing a college team. Truly remarkable. I think our ceiling, if we stay healthy, could reach levels that maybe no Gator defense ever has, really. I mean, that's, that's a real possible scenario, especially given the offenses we're going to face this year. A lot of opportunity for them to, to put their names in history books.
1: So this unit on every level, so the defensive line, the linebackers, and the secondary all played phenomenally well. No, there was no time where I was even worried that Kentucky was going to move the ball past midfield, really, once the first five minutes of the game were over. Uh, From that first series where we saw Alex Anzalone, you know, record a sack and a tackle for loss and another tackle, it was like, okay, what what are they going to do? I think the key moment for them uh, when they threw against Wilson, who's, you know, in probably most people's opinion, the lesser corner, even if that's by a small amount. And he made that incredible interception. It's was like, what are they going to do? They're leaving these guys alone on an island, and he just makes an incredible pick. So at that point, they were in such lockdown mode. Uh, Kentucky, anytime they drop back to pass, I was like, oh, this is going to go well for us. What are they possibly going to do? Uh, you know, a little success running the ball, <laughs> very small, um, which, you know, is a slight concern moving forward that we're going to be heavy enough along the interior of the defensive line to stop some of these road grading teams. But, yeah, you're right. This unit has a chance to be historically good, and as good as they want to be, really. Now, some depth concerns, as we talked about, at corner and at linebacker and things like that. But if these guys stay on the field, uh, they're going to just abuse most people. Um, really fantastic game from Tabor and Wilson, both of the interceptions. I mean, that that Tabor interception where he jumped in front of the ball. Have you ever seen anything like that? Yeah, it, it, no I want to say no I'm thinking that I'm sure
2: it's happened before but to pick off a bubble screen where you beat the blocker to the spot I mean it wasn't like the Kentucky receiver didn't try to get the block I mean on on snap Tager, Tabor immediately reads that this is a bubble screen and he just dives at the ball it's just it's ludicrous film session planning to recognize that and, and also extreme confidence to know that they don't have time to go deep so Credit to Kentucky. I thought they lined up in that that monster set, as they call it, where you have two wide receivers super far spread out on either side of the, the line. And basically, you're just trying to push our corners and the safety over top of the edge so that you can have an even number situation in the box. They, they kind of stole several yards that way. That is not a way to move the ball long-term across the field. But they did it. And that's what made the defense more impressive. Is It wasn't like Kentucky stayed based the whole game. They tried everything they could to move the ball against us. They were not just lining up and saying, well, oh, let's just keep running the same offense. And we just absolutely wholly and utterly destroyed it. Uh, and that—that that is something to behold. So
1: it will be fun to see what we can do as we as we move along. But Yeah, impressive play by the defensive line. I don't want to leave them out. We've talked about our corners, but uh, Jordan Sherritt looked good. Some good push-up in the middle by C. Jefferson on some plays. So those guys, you know, they're not like the people everyone was talking about after the game, but they really played well. Oh, tons of pressure.
2: Uh, Jordan Sherritt, two sacks in the game. I and mean, we had done our preseason sack list. At, will anyone get more than six and a half? And right now we've got two or three guys that are already sitting on on more than two. Yep. And uh, Anzalone and Sherrod are four, fourth and fifth in the SEC in total sack count. So right now th- there's just absolutely nothing you can say that's really bad about this defense other than I just can't wait to watch them play again. And, and I'm sure they're feeling the same way. So since we've talked a little bit about the individual players on defense, let's look at the overall stars of the game. Who really stood out to you?
1: I'll start on defense as we're talking about this, and I'll steal your boy here, Alex Anzalone. I mean, uh, apparently the broadcasters were talking him up as well, uh, but he looked phenomenal. He's always in the right spot. His instincts are incredible. That's what I think I under- underestimated about him because everyone knew he was big and athletic, but he knows where he's supposed to be in this defense all the time, seemingly. He's not caught out of position. He's not over pursuing, and he's such a sure tackler, which doesn't always come from somebody who's you know known as like a run and hit guy. But he played exceptionally well in this game. He's, he just stands out. Like your eyes are drawn to him. He makes so many plays. What about you on defense? Yeah, Anzalone obviously as as my
2: guy that I thought could really be maybe the best player on that defense. Uh, just kind of the guy that that adds the most value. And then I thought Sherrod had his best game as a Gator. He was kind of a guy that got overshadowed. He was a depth guy on the defensive line. And it's very clear now that they don't view him as a depth guy. played a ton of snaps, incredibly impactful. They shifted him all over the line. thought he had his best game, like we said, as a Gator. On the offensive side of the ball, I thought Luke Del Rio really stepped up. Um, There's still some things I think that we're going to need to see him do. But overall, quantum leap from the UMass game to this game, we learned that he's a very, very good deep ball thrower. Puts a lot of nice air into the ball. Leads his receivers very, very well. Uh, we learned that he can make the drag route throw very well. Uh, he can throw the hitches on the outside pretty well. What still remains to be seen is how well he can throw into windows. I think he's still struggling with that. He was late multiple times throwing into a what was an open window, and then he compounded that by actually throwing the ball into the window after it was late. That is going to be very dangerous against better teams. Um, so I still want to see how he can complete these 10 to 20-yard passes in a window Maybe he never hits that, and that's okay. If the best he is is what we saw on Saturday with the defense that we have, you can manage the offense around that to limit those throws, and we can be just fine. Uh, So encouraging and exciting to see where that's going to go. And then, of course, I thought that Callaway had, as always, a great game. He's back there on kick returns, punt returns, has 129 yards receiving, kind of does everything. And and you you forget that the guy's a a sophomore, and he plays like he's an NFL veteran out there. Really, just continue to just be impressed by the way that
1: he plays as a college football player. Yeah, incredibly sure-handed. I don't think I've ever been nervous about him fielding a punt. Uh, fantastic game by him. It feels like almost just standard. Like he played excellent, and it was like, had yeah, just a normal average game from him, which says a lot about him already yeah. as you know, only a couple games into his sophomore year. I think for me, I've, I've mentioned him, Michael Pirine. I wasn't expecting him really to play at all this year with the amount of depth we had at running back. I mean, you always heard about the top four backs in the offseason, Thompson, Scarlett, Cronkright, and even Mark Herndon. But they must love this kid to be giving him – I mean, they gave him a carry early on in the first game. He fumbled, Uh, so that wasn't good. But they trusted him enough and believed him enough to put him back out there in the first half and then really tore Kentucky anew in there. So I was super impressed by him. He might – you know, it's – Small sample size, but he might have the most ceiling of anybody if he can run like that. That was an NFL-style, I'm going to use some burst to like beat you to the spot and get downfield. So really, really
2: impressive by him. Yeah, He has exceptionally quick feet. I was watching the Cardinals game last night, and David Johnson is a similar kind of guy. Bigger, but very similar. Incredibly quick feet before he even hits the first hole. And I think that's why the coaches continue to give him so much playing time. Our other running backs uh, as strong and as as vertical as they are with their ability to run through a hole? I don't know that they possess the feet that he has. So being able to alternate all those guys is truly a problem for the defense. And then again, I want to highlight Jawan Taylor. I thought that he may have made the biggest impact that maybe you didn't notice. Um, Luke Del Rio did not get touched after the first series. He didn't get touched. Kentucky had three sacks the game before. Their defensive line, while inexperienced, was, was generally thought to be able to get some pressure. We had an O-line that was a sieve against UMass. Not to get touched. It's the first time a Gator quarterback hasn't been sacked in 15 games. So a lot of credit goes to true freshman Jawan Taylor. He's a monster of a person. And it will be interesting to see
1: if Fred Johnson is able to get back into the lineup. now. Yeah, he that was hurt a little bit. No way. And so that's what they said. I think McIlwain referred to Taylor as a rolling ball of butcher knives, which is a great expression. Okay, the key question for me maybe in this whole podcast, James, should we expect this kind of explosiveness and efficiency moving forward? Or is this maybe like a high point for this team? And, and we, we shouldn't expect this every game in in and out. Yeah, I think this has to be a high point, And
2: it doesn't mean that the style with which we played can't be consistent. And we, we talk a lot about this in this show. I'm a big style person. And I think what style will tell you is how well – it will work against better teams. But certainly, Kentucky's defense is a, is a bottom decile. They're a bottom 10% defense. They have been for several years. They gave up over 40 points five or six times last year. They got walloped by a bunch of SEC teams. Southern Miss hung a, you know, 42 on them. We hung um, 45 on them. It's You're not going to reproduce that. That requires positive matchups across the board, which we had. But I think what you are going to see is this New England Patriots-style commitment to mismatches. So McIlwain's offense is built upon creating a mismatch. And we had seven different receivers catch passes in that game. We had mismatches across the board, and we efficiently exploited just about every single one of them. And that you can expect to continue. So what that means is our offense is multiple enough that if you're a defense, you can't just prepare for one thing to stop us. You can't just stop Callaway. You can't just stop the run. You can't just stop our tight ends. We're very, very hard to defend. So I think the style with which we displayed should remain consistent and we should get better at that. But the production that we had in that game, outside of Presbyterian and North Texas and a team like that, probably going to be hard to reach that kind of atmospheric level of production because Kentucky's defense is really just that bad. It's a team that's lost eight of their last nine games. Um, but again, the style
1: with what we saw was was really, really encouraging. I liked it from that standpoint as well. I don't think we're going to see this level of productivity in terms of How like, really efficient, I guess is the right word. I mean, very few drives where we didn't come away with points. You know, not always explosive, like, one, two-play drives or not that kind of offense yet. I don't know if we can be with Del Rio because then maybe have the arm for that. But uh, really encouraged by that. So if this is the high point, I think that's okay. But I think we can expect at least somewhat better than UMass going forward. And so, I don't know, that was really encouraging for me, like, to see them take advantage of Kentucky because just because Kentucky's bad doesn't mean we would have been able to execute at the level to take advantage of them like we did on Saturday. Yeah. To execute against air even is,
2: is difficult at times with previous offenses that we've had. And so looking at Del Rio as kind of a final comment. I think he's been the guy. A lot of people have been talking about. He, he obviously put together a really nice game, 19 of 32, 59% completion rate, uh, 320 passing yards. Uh, Am I ready to anoint him as sort of like the next skater Hall of Famer like McElwain said? You know, no, no, not yet. There's still throws I need to see from him. But I thought that he showed good vision. He continues to keep his eyes downfield the entire time. He continues to be a very, very good decision maker. Uh, And I think the good news in that game was there's about eight or nine spots on film he's going to get to look at this week where he can see his weakness. And his true weakness really is throwing those balls into the windows. But it was a huge bonus for me that he throws the deep ball as well as he does. Because if you're a game planner now and you're going to plan for the Gators, playing cover one is probably not going to be something you're going to want to do because he throws a very nice deep ball and he's got a big arm. The ball he threw to Callaway was 55 yards. So you can have a big arm distance-wise and not necessarily a snappy arm velocity-wise. I think that's what Del Rio falls into. He can throw it far. It's not going to come out really hot in the 20-yard range. So I think he put enough on tape to really make it difficult for defensive coordinators to scheme him I expect teams to continue probably to try to employ more of cover two style if they can. The only problem with that is if you sit in nickel cover two, you can get run on. That's what Kentucky did. They tried to keep their two pass covering linebackers in and they just could not stop our run. And, and that's going to be a problem for every team going forward. Uh, so it will be interesting to kind of see what the game plan is. North Texas isn't going to matter. They're very overmatched. But what Tennessee tries to do with the average defense really against us will be insightful. But Del Rio showed a lot to me. I feel infinitely more encouraged after this game than I did with UMass. And that's why we always say the two-game set is so much more important than just a one-game set. Uh, You have to look at both of them to get an idea of
1: where we are. Um, What are your thoughts? Yeah, he showed me a lot in this game. I I love his accuracy when he's throwing on time. So that deep ball, you're right, it wasn't 80 yards, but it was in the perfect spot for Callaway to run under that. And that was also the genius of Callaway that he runs the precise route and angles himself so he's going to run underneath the ball at the perfect moment. But Del Rio, he throws people open. He puts the ball down the field where people can get it. You're right that the thing he needs to work on is his anticipation. There's a couple moments where up in the stands high, we can see that guy is open running this post route right in the middle of the end zone, and it's just a beat too late, and he can't get it there. But and That's think, the, Brandon, the Brandon Powell play that yes. you're referencing,
2: right? Runs a runs a corner route, and the throw is open. By the time he
1: throws it, he's covered, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a couple plays like that where we're like, throw it, you know, and he just sees it a little too late. But that's nice because that's something that's coachable and teachable is when you recognize those things. I think he's smart enough to do that is when he watches that on film, he's going to be like, okay, when this happens and this guy's open, you just got to let it fly. And he's pretty accurate when he does. And so that's the, the best thing. I... So, yeah, like I said, he's got some room to improve, but I'm hopeful that he can make those improvements. That's like probably the most encouraging thing about it. Okay, maybe the most popular gator, at least coming into this game, our boy Eddie Pinero. He's certainly the only person that people are chanting. Chanting the, name. the kicker's name is something I've never heard, but we're so desperate, I guess, for any kind of success in that area. Had a little bit of a rough day, went one for three. All the kicks were really. From distance, so it's not like he was missing chip shots. How did you feel about his performance? I think it was a
2: good thing to have happen. Uh, you know, I was talking with Caleb Sturgis before the season, and Caleb is a mentor to Eddie Pinero, and he said, "You know what? Former Gator, right, former Gator, star. now in the NFL with the Eagles, won the job this year. Um Probably our best field goal kicker that's ever kicked at UF. Caleb Sturgis already. We've had oh, some close. good ones, but I would say the most productive." So. He said, you know, what really matters with a kicker is what happens when things go sideways. He's like, that that's the difference between being an NFL kicker with, with, a, with a big leg and being a college kicker that's not kicking anymore, is you have to be able to handle the, the downswings. I think it's great that he gets a chance to come against North Texas and play a game when he struggled. Hopefully he does very well this week. And then going into Tennessee, he's able to handle the adversity if he misses a kick in Tennessee. Uh, if, let's say, he had made all of his kicks, we go into to Knoxville and he misses his first kick in that game, and all of a sudden it's like, oh no, this is the big game and I'm blowing it. Beneficial. Also, he he's kicking bombs out there, which makes it difficult. He had one really muffed kick at the yeah, end. Yeah, looking way overswung. He was trying to yeah.
1: kick it out of the stadium, and I think that'll be a learning curve. It's like you don't need to smash this eighty yards. Just- right. So, uh, no concerns for me. He
2: banged through every extra point. Most college kickers are going to be less than forty percent, even from forty-one plus. whereas NFL kickers are, you know, I think at like seventy percent or some absurd average there. So. Continue to be encouraged by his leg. Leg strength is, un- is unreal. Right. Yeah, and I, and I think his accuracy, his, his variance, if you will, is pretty small when he misses left to right. So excited to see how he does this week, though. He will be someone to watch this week to see how does he
1: yeah, does Yeah, does he come out and, and confidently make those kicks again? Because, you know, he's only really had success at this point. He's never missed kicks in a game. He's never had, like, adversity. So I'm hopeful that he will, but it will be interesting to see him come out and kick this week. So as I reflect back on this this game, and it's been almost hard to process
2: this, it's like this really good gift that we got. And I kinda felt like on today's podcast we were gonna get like a PED notification and somebody was gonna test positive and that was gonna be the end because we're not allowed to have good things anymore at UF, but it's it's Monday afternoon and so far no one has kicked off our program and we're we actually get to enjoy this win. So Mike Bianchi coming into the game last week, I think, sort of epitomized maybe how some of the Gator fans felt. Mike Bianchi's a very controversial reporter for the the Orlando Sentinel. Some of you probably Columnist. hate him. Some of you might like him. He's known as a Gator hater. He predicted Kentucky to win this game. And he wasn't necessarily alone in that. Like we said, I was at 60% Gators, 40% Kentucky. Predicted them to win, then this week went on and said essentially... I'm going to take a week off from picking college games for the first time in 25 years because I was so wrong and I feel bad about it. But I think that the bigger thing to pull out of this is, so we were just giving 25 minutes on this podcast of glowing reviews of how great this team played. Did the national media,
1: Alan, care at all about the Gators' win over Kentucky? Did it even move the needle for them? Not much, I don't think. Uh, It was the primetime CBS game, so I think a lot of people saw it. But I think people just assume Kentucky's Miserable. They lost to Southern Miss. Although, as we've seen with Arkansas, one week, you know, they barely win their first game, and then they come on the road and beat TCU. So we'll have to see with Kentucky moving forward. Yeah, I don't know that. I didn't see any kind of big jump, any kind of big spike in our – I think we're back in the top 25 in the AP at 23 or so. But, no, I don't – I still don't think people are – are buying into this. As we asked before the season, are people sleeping on the Gators? I think they're still sleeping. What about you? No,
2: they're they're sleeping in late. Uh, if you did a Google search on Sunday, I, I couldn't find one national article from publication that talked at all about this game meaning anything. And in fact, you may have watched the highlights on Saturday night and been wondering why you weren't even seeing a single highlight from the Gator game on any of the national networks, ESPN, ABC, whatever game you're watching. They just showed you the score. Oh, Florida rolls Kentucky. Um, so, no, the answer is nobody really cares. And the reason is, like we said, Kentucky's lost eight of the last nine games. Kentucky has frequently gotten smashed by quality opponents. But this is why I continue to say that you have to watch games to know what the importance is. Yes, Kentucky lost to Southern Miss last week. Southern Miss is a team that played in their conference championship game last year, returned a bunch of starters, and is a legitimately good football team that will be a bowl team this year. Kentucky was up 35 10, blew that game, disappeared, stayed disappeared for our entire game. But I happen to think that our result was real. Now, I can't project what that means. I haven't beaten a quality team yet, but I can tell you that it wasn't a fluke that we murdered them like that. That was a
1: significant beatdown. Yeah, it wasn't just tons of like mistakes and turnovers and and we're like fumbling the ball forward into the end zone. Felt like a real. Just a hard working job. They went out there and they grinded it out, but it went really well. But if you had watched the game, which
2: the national media is most likely not doing, they would have seen that. But instead, they kind of just look at the score and think, oh, yeah, it's, it's Kentucky. Kentucky's terrible. I, that happens to them. And, and no, I did, it doesn't, no one cares. And it's so actually we play good for Tennessee the Gators, or anything probably. else. No one cares. It's great for the Gators because as a coach, you don't want your team thinking they're great because they beat Kentucky, which they're not. It means nothing. But you're really encouraged because what you've seen get put on film was awesome. But yeah, the national media right now is completely asleep and they have no intention of waking up until we beat their beloved Tennessee, who two weeks in a row has looked very mediocre. Um, So it's going to be exciting. Good spot. Good spot for Florida. Can't wait for the real stretch of games. Uh, And obviously, those of you listening to the show know that Alan and I probably tend to find ourselves... More in the middle with regards to how we view the Gators. little conservative. Maybe Alan's more optimistic. Maybe I'm more pessimistic. I, I don't know. I think I just look at it each year. But one guy that that cannot be said of is our good friend JT Raymond. And JT, in my opinion, is the most optimistic Gator fan I have ever known or talked to. Yeah,
1: and I think we're trying to capture a little bit maybe the feelings of Gator Nation. If everyone was drinking the JT Kool-Aid. Um yeah, I like to call him Crazy JT because he's always super hyped that the Gators are going to win every
2: single game. And for a little contextual background, he's also a, a Jaguars fan. And for every year for the past 10 years, the Jaguars would win at least 10 games and go to the playoffs. He's a very smart guy and at times a very logical guy. But, of course, he was higher than ever after this Kentucky game. And so we thought it would be fun to bring on somebody who maybe is – is sort of the the upper end of what can this Gator team be? How much do these wins mean? Like, What have you seen in the field that makes you think the Gators are going to just be sky is the limit success level here? So we're going to interview him and, and kind of ask him some questions to see what does he think after this win and after these
1: two games? All right, we're glad to have on the show longtime friend of the pod, Gator grad, lifelong Gator fan, JT Raymond. Welcome, JT.
3: Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Really enjoy listening to the show, and uh, sorry if my voice is a little hoarse. Uh, I had a great time in the Gators last weekend.
2: Yeah, so JT, myself, Alan, and a few others were sitting together at the game last weekend, and, and obviously, JT, during the game, you kind of kept uttering the same phrase to Alan and I, which was, are you a believer? Do you believe yet in this Gator team? So how much did this win Move the needle for you on the Gators. Where, where is the needle at as far as uh, season success right now?
3: Well, James, quite frankly, I was really high on the Gators, and I have no idea why people were underselling us so much at the beginning of the season. I thought uh, if you look at what we did with Will Greer, and uh, even the fact that we, with as bad as Treon Harris was, we were still able to manufacture wins, uh, I really thought this was going to be a really good team Uh, in last weekend's performance was just absolutely dominant. If anything, it made me more confident in the Gators' ability to to win, the Gators' ability to compete, uh, not just with our schedule this regular season, but potentially even something beyond that and something very special.
1: Yeah, so what's the ceiling and the floor for this team for you?
3: Uh, I think before the season, my ceiling would have been uh, 11 or 12. Uh, and then my floor is nine. After that win, I would put the the ceiling at 15, uh, which I think you and I both know what that means, and uh, the floor right around 10 or 11, because I don't see a team on our schedule and a team out there, quite frankly, that we could not beat.
2: So you think our floor is 10 or 11 games. You can see no way in which we lose even three games. Not possible.
3: Correct. Unless, and barring any injuries, I firmly believe this team, look, James, I mean, this team was dominant. Uh, Jared Davis and Anzalone are arguably two of the best linebackers in the country. This defense may be one of the best we've ever seen in college football, period. I mean, they gave up 10 passing yards to their starting quarterback at Kentucky. Uh, obviously, we won't do that against everybody, but... There's no real weakness on this team. If you can play man coverage with our corners, put them on an island and stack the box and sell out to stop the run, I don't see anybody scoring. And as long as our offense is average or, like we looked against Kentucky, above average, then I, I there, there's not a team out there that would scare me uh, that I don't think we can hang with. Now, could we lose a game uh, or two? Um, sure, potentially. Uh, but not because we wouldn't be the better team and not because I don't think we could win any of those games.
2: So what would you say to the people, the national media, Tennessee fans, Georgia fans, that tell you that the Gators cannot win the East?
3: Well, first off, I think the national media has completely dropped the ball on this. I think they've been completely gutless in propping up a Georgia and a Tennessee team that is, in my mind, very unproven, uh, Georgia with the new coach, Georgia with Eason, an unproven, uh, unproven quarterback. And then Tennessee, or don't even get me started on Tennessee. I mean, they haven't had a meaningful win in a decade. Uh, anytime the game is close, they tense up and look like they want to lose that game. They try to give that game away to App State. Uh, and, and I would firmly believe that uh, we should not have a problem with Tennessee – Uh, Georgia, when we play Georgia, you always throw out the record books when we play them. Uh, Florida State will be tough. Arkansas on the road will be tough. Um, But again, if you play like you did on Saturday, those are games you could and, quite frankly, should win, in my opinion.
2: JT, if we were to tell the listeners that, that you're probably one of the more optimistic, maybe the most optimistic fans we have, and that for years and years and years you predicted the Gators to have tremendous success, What's to stop us from from believing that this is just another year where you predict the Gators win a national championship and not actually any piece of analysis?
3: No, I, I, and that, that's a fair point. And, uh, and to be fair, the, uh, the uh, margin for error, I think, is I think it was possible with some of those must-champ years. Obviously, the 12-1 and year, I, I thought we had the potential uh, to win the national championship there. Uh, Notre Dame looked bad. Alabama obviously rolled at uh, Notre Dame that year. Um, And last year, before Will Greer got hurt, I thought it was very possible for us to win. I've been watching Florida football since the late 90s during the Spurrier years. And this era that Jim McElwain, this foundation that Jim McElwain is beginning to build here, uh, has some very similar uh, feelings to it and I, I think he's embraced the culture and i really think we're going to have a dominant run here uh with the gators moving forward
1: okay JC, do you feel like your views represent gator nation as a whole like I are they representatives I,
3: I, I think my views represent the gators that truly watch the games and have a firm belief in uh in our ability and the ability to win uh, the national championship. I think there are some that are that are a little bit more hesitant to embrace and a little bit more slower to accept and would like to see us play against uh, bigger opponents and, and better opponents. I, I, I recognize that Kentucky is not the best team in the world and that they've had their problems, and they obviously gave up a, a large lead to Southern Miss and, and not trying to, to overplay how good of an opponent Kentucky was or, or downplay how mediocre we looked against UMass. But if you look at the talent on our team and you look at the coach that we have, uh, I don't see how you could say that we should not be favored to win the SEC East. And if you win the SEC East um, and can hang with Alabama, then you can hang with any team in the country.
2: So looking at this week, and I'm going to give you a chance to make a prediction for next week as well, because this week is sort of an automatic. Give me a score for this week and then give me a score for next week when we play Tennessee.
3: This week, this week will be interesting. I think, I think you're going to have a little bit of a letdown. Uh, this will be our third relative cupcake in a row. Um, some guys are, are a little beat up and may sit out. I don't picture North Texas scoring more than 10 points. Uh, they may get three unless we start playing our backups. Uh, I think it's reasonable to think that we'll win 41-3 or so. Uh, maybe a defensive touchdown, probably a couple extra kicks. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll win that one pretty handily.
2: And next week for Tennessee, the one that matters?
3: Next, Yep, the one that matters, the big Tennessee game. Probably my most hated uh, team that I ever see, and and I love when we play Tennessee, and nothing brings me more joy than watching Tennessee lose to us every single year. And, uh, again, I don't see them scoring. Now, they did a good job of manufacturing points against us, I thought, last year uh, with a couple trick plays or a couple big plays uh they they may have a couple of trick plays up their sleeve so i'll give them 13 points but uh i think we'll score about 27 um and the game will really never be in question in the second half
1: okay give me your prediction for the season don't couch it any. don't give me any ifs ands or buts all right give me what is the gators record at the end of the year
3: i think the gators record at the end of the year will be 11 and 1 uh that loss will either come uh, with Florida State, maybe Arkansas on the road, or Georgia. I think, as optimistic as I am, it is difficult to run the table and have a perfect season. Spurrier never did it, uh, Urban did it once, but then we lost to Alabama in the SEC Championship. I think we'll go 11-1 and and we'll have an opportunity to play in the uh, SEC uh, Championship. And uh, I think this Gator team will remember the bad taste that we had in our mouth against Alabama last year. And if you remember that game, even with Treon Harris, we were playing them tough. Our defense was not giving, up, giving them anything in a year where Alabama actually had a really good offense that year. Uh, and if we had a quarterback or if we could generate points at all, it would have been a four-quarter game. And, and I think the Gators, having that, having that memory in their, in their uh, minds, will be able to upset Alabama in the SEC title game. And if you're able to beat Alabama, then you could beat any team in the country and, and have a good chance to, uh, to go to the national championship and potentially win.
2: JT, what's your favorite Gainesville restaurant?
3: Oh, boy, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I know it's, it's more of a national chain, but it's a, it's a restaurant It's hard to find these days. Uh, big Larry Giant sub fan. Uh, right there, across from uh, the school, right there, and uh, in Midtown. Um, big fan of Larry Giant Subs. Also, big fan uh, Four Rivers Barbecue that I know recently moved there a year or two ago. Uh, those are probably two of my favorite places to eat there.
2: Well, JT, thanks so much for being on the show. We look forward to tracking your predictions uh, as the most optimistic fan in Gator Nation. If you think you're more optimistic than JT send us a, a Facebook message and we can, we can compare the results. But JT, thanks, thanks so much for being on the show today. We obviously enjoyed it.
3: Hey, guys, I appreciate the time. And, and hopefully you guys will be calling me up at the end of the season and telling me that I'm right and I should have listened to you from the get-go. All
1: right, James, the Gators take on North Texas this week, who went 1-11 last year. Tell us a little bit about
2: them. Well, first of all, fun facts, Stone Cold Steve Austin went to North Texas. And Joe Green famous NFL Hall of Famer, went to North Texas. But unfortunately, neither of those guys will be <laughs> suiting up for them this week. No stone-cold stunners for them? No, no stone-cold stunners for them this week. Uh, Seth Luttrell is their coach. He comes from North Carolina, where last year he was the offensive coordinator. He's 37 years old. A lot of promise. It's It seems like a pretty good hire for North Texas. They've been really bad uh, for the past four or five years. Dan McCarney, who actually coached at UF for a season or two, uh, kind of got them to a high height and then dropped them down. Numbers-wise, this year they just come off a win against Bethune-Cookman last week and a loss against SMU in Week 1. Numbers-wise, bottom what you expect for a bottom FBS team. um, They're just not very good. So they come in at 216 passing yards a game, uh, 200 rushing yards a game, but those are very inflated, almost entirely off the Bethune-Cookman game. They allow 187 passing yards a game and 214 yards against the run. So it's the third week in a row we're going to face a team that is bottom-decile on defense. And and not only that, they also have significantly undersized players on the front seven, although they have two really good safeties on the back end.
1: What kind of offense are they running? Are they running some kind of spread attack, correct?
2: They run, Yeah, they run the North Carolina spread, actually, almost exactly. So it's a run-based spread, 50-50, a lot of shotgun draw, a lot of four wide receiver sets. I mean, basically the standard spread that so many teams are in love with nowadays that thankfully the Gators no longer employed because I just dislike. We'll, yeah, we'll see if we can stop it. We see if we can. So outside of North Texas in the overview, which we're going to get a lot more information from Brett Vito who has been covering the team for more than 10 years in a few minutes. What's some of the
1: Gator news coming into this game? Well, unfortunately, a little bit of injury news and maybe of the worst kind with Antonio Callaway. They said he has a quad injury and so they're not really sure about the severity of it. Now, this week, that really doesn't matter at all. He does, We don't need Antonio Callaway to win this game, hopefully. Um, but that would be really concerning moving forward. I think he's most our most important player on offense other than Luke Dorio. And, yeah, we're going to need him to beat any kind of high-level competition. So hopefully that's a minor energy injury. I wouldn't be surprised if they held him out if it's serious at all because that would be, in my mind, the smart thing to do. And then our big offensive recruit, Tyree Cleveland, Really didn't seem the field very much because he re-injured his hamstring, um, which is the injury that's been bothering him throughout the preseason and the in camp and everything like that. So that's disappointing because he's a guy who needs these reps. Not a lot of practice time so far. Would love to see him play like a ton of snaps against an opponent like North Texas and really get a feel from the game. And I. I don't know if we'll see him on the field, so that's disappointing. Yeah, very disappointing. I'm not
2: a I'm not an official doctor by any stretch of the imagination, but you follow football long enough to know that a hamstring injury after already injuring your hamstring. If I had to place a bet down, I would say that you probably really won't see Cleveland in any significant action this year. Wow! And, and here's the reason why. He's probably going to miss another four weeks uh, at the least. The hamstring is not going to heal in one or two weeks, and if he does, he'll pull it again. Miss another four weeks and you are so behind the rep eight ball as you enter into the heart of the SEC season, there's almost no way you can get on the field with the depth we're already displaying at wide receiver, no matter how talented you are. These are super crucial games experience wise to get before you head into the crucible of the schedule. So really disappointing news for me today to see that for him. Everyone had I hopes for him. I hope that's not the case, but in my mind I'm already sort of writing him off as a guy we're gonna have to wait to see next year and hopefully be again, really that's not true. So what can we learn going into the game this week? As an overmaster opponent, we're a thirty six point favorite, aside from the fun game of will we cover the spread or not. Is there anything we can glean from the Gators performance this weekend?
1: I think so. How do they handle some success? Now we talked about the national media not being, you know, all over them and like hyping them up, but they did just come out and blow out an opponent. How is there Work ethic this week. Are they preparing correctly? Are they doing things that they're supposed to do? And come out? can they come out and execute at a high level again? Can they show some consistency? This is a really, really young offense. We're going to say this over and over again probably. Freshman, sophomore, all over the offensive line, at the receiver position, new quarterback, young running backs, youth everywhere. These guys are probably going to be up and down frequently. But I would be really encouraged to see them come out and not just win – but play with the same kind of, like, at least the same, close to the same level of efficiency and productivity and execution as they showed against Kentucky. It should,
2: should be a fun game to watch the offensive line. So, North Texas is converting to a 3 3 5 defense, which is not often run in college. It's sort of a really old school NFL defense that gained favor. I mean, I'm not sure it's been right everywhere, but it's an NFL defense that has gained favor throughout history for small segments of time if you have the right personnel generally it's tough to run a quarter-style defense like that because you don't have enough guys in line of scrimmage and the linebackers have to really cover a lot of ground. Good test for the O-line, though. We struggled with a 3-4 front against UMass. This is another three-man front where they have to get hats on linebackers and the linebackers are not going to be in gaps they can recognize. So it will be fun to watch how we handle having to get a hat on a linebacker that's not right in front of you. Uh, So how do we gap protect? That would be good to watch. It will be good to see Luke Del Rio go against a team that employs a much different style of defense than we've seen in game one and game two. So can he hit the windows on this defense? And and, and probably thirdly, they're a spread team. And even though they're overmatched, it's going to be great before we play Tennessee to play exactly. a team that's going to run a ton of zone read. They're going to run a ton with that. of zone it's read of year, last year. And we saw Kentucky do it in the second half, which was great. We were almost tipping the captain Mike Stoops last week saying, thank you for putting in the spread option quarterback to continue to give us reps against that. So, It's going to be good. How do we handle the zone read? How does our O line play against a a different set, a three down set? And how does Luke Durrell handle yet another different defensive formation before we hit in Tennessee? So there's several good things to look for. I wish we would be looking for how Cleveland was going to play. I wanted to add that to the list, but those three things are going to be interesting. And then, like you said, how do you carry over success from this win? Do you go put another great piece on film and dominate them with motivation like you had coming from UMass, or do you already say, hey? We're rolling now. We got this. The defense Kind of come out sluggish and you go lax and you're not as dialed in. Um, It's going to show us the character of the team and how well the coaches are able to really get these guys to perform. So good things to watch there. What are the keys to victory? And maybe the keys to victory is a bad word because there's almost no way we're going to lose this game. What are some things that you would think we should see that are going to be key
1: to a good performance? Key to us giving them a good grade. Maybe is the better way to say that. And we just mentioned a few But here's what I want to see from Luke Del Rio is that he continues to learn where and when to go with the ball. And he already does that at a pretty decent level. I want to see him uh, anticipating where his receivers are going to be, continue to grow in his command of the offense. And I want to see them, you know, let's clean up some of the routes that caused maybe that interception. Are the running backs still churning out yards? So if I'm going to boil it down to a key is can these guys... Uh, keep the mistakes to a minimum because that's really going to bog the game down. If they're if we're having a ton of penalties and turnovers, can they play at a high enough level with enough focus for me on that and on defense? Uh, I would love to see us you know get some of the reps for some of these guys who are backups, especially at linebacker in the secondary. And that you know that might mean a, a yardage given up, a few more scores if they're playing the backups a ton. I would love to see the coaching staff give those guys a ton of
2: reps. So I think for for fun-watching purposes, right now UF's defensive stats are ridiculous. We're giving up 98 passing yards a game and 70 rushing yards a game. Uh, Last year, North Texas averaged 15 points a game. This year, they're up around 27, so they've already had a significant performance. But if they start a true freshman against us in an undersized, undermanned team, the starters will probably come out early in this game. But for as long as they're in there... I love to see us keep their you know, their total offensive production below 100, 120 yards. I think that would show they were committed to the game. I think if you see our starters in and they're more at 150 yards on their side, that, that would probably show me a significant lax in focus and desire. One thing to look for there, I'm still going to be looking for Luke Del Rio to make those 10 to 20-yard throws with some velocity in a window, like you said. For him, he's going to have to be anticipating that throw and making a proper pre-snap read. Uh, So I want to see that happen against this team. It's a good week for him to practice hitting some of those throws, putting that on film. And then ultimately, I want to see our run game do really well. I'd like to see us really gouge some big runs, some explosive runs this week. Uh, That would show me the offensive line is not only getting solid push, but also a nice big gap for a running back to hit at full speed before he meets his first guy. That would be a very, very encouraging thing for us to see.
1: Yeah, I totally agree on the offensive line. They were creating some space but I, I would hope with an opponent like North Texas, you're creating just bus lanes for these guys to run through, and I think they're capable of that. And I would like to see some big chunk plays. We didn't see that really at all against UMass. That was our main criticism. Saw it some more against Kentucky. But an opponent like this, if they're improving, and this would be for me the improvement from the offensive line, that we'd see some big running plays. You know, we're talking about 15, 20, 30 yard runs. Okay, prediction time. Give me a score. You went super conservative last week. How are you going to go this week?
2: Well, I I feel like we're going to be, like I said, my prediction for the offense is to be 45th by the end of the year. You know, And right now uh, we're 56th, which is good. We're kind of trending in the right direction against terrible teams. But if the style we saw last week is in fact real, which I do think that it is, this should be another game where you put up 500 yards of offense and you score 50-plus points. So I'm going to say 52 uh, to... I don't even know how North Texas really scores, but 10, because you're going to have a weird fourth quarter probably. I'm going to go 52-10. We cover the spread in this game, which is a huge 36-point spread. It's
1: it's one of the last spreads you get before there is no spread, and they just turn it off. But uh, what have you got? Very similar to you on this one. I mean, it's hard not to predict this to score more points than we did against Kentucky. Uh, I was thinking 55, and I was also thinking 13, because I think – Hopefully, like I said, we're going to see a lot of our backups playing, and you know, if if North Texas is still trying to compete, they might put some points on the board in the second half. Um, And so really be paying attention to how we're doing in that first half. Don't get caught up in the yardage totals afterward, if the game goes how we think it will. So with that, we're going to bring
2: on Brett Vito, who's a true expert in North Texas. We've kind of primed the pump, and we're going to chat with him about who North Texas is, who they were, who they are now, what are they capable of, and then get some players to watch uh, as we tune into the game this weekend. Excited to welcome to the program Brett Vito. He covers North Texas for the Denton Record Chronicle. He's been covering the team since 2003. Brett, welcome to the show.
4: Yeah, Thanks for having me, guys.
1: Brett, can you give us the state of North Texas as a program? Where are they at right now? Well, I think they're in the midst of a pretty big
4: rebuilding project. If you look at North Texas historically, uh, they had a really good run there in the early 2000s. They went to four straight bowl games and then really fell on some hard times. Uh, you know, they made it kind of a bad coaching hire with the former high school coach and Todd Dodge. Uh, had a brief uptick under Dan McCartney here a couple of years ago, uh, the former Iowa state head coach who he spent some time before as a defensive coordinator. He kind of rebuilt the thing from the absolute bottom there. And got North Texas to the point where they were nine and four in 2013 and won a bowl game, uh, beat UNLV in the heart of Dallas Bowl. At that point, they kind of went back, they kind of took a dip back. You know, they graduated a bunch of really good players, uh, some of the better players from their recent history. Fell back to four and eight, and then last year they ended up going one and eleven. They let Dan McCarney go, you know, five games into the season, had one of the worst years in, in program history, and then hired Seth Latrell to hopefully you know, rebuild the thing. You know, he was the former offensive coordinator at North Carolina. He's got some regional ties because he was the a fullback at Oklahoma, grew up in Oklahoma, and then worked his first job as a full-time college assistant was at Texas Tech under Mike Leach. So he's kind of got some regional ties and, you know, is an, is kind of a spread offense guru, which is the direction they wanted to go as a program. So now they're in the midst of kind of rebuilding under him.
2: What makes it hard to win at North Texas?
4: Well, I think there's a lot of factors. And the, the problem at North Texas traditionally has been is you're kind of at the bottom of this, of the college football totem pole in Texas. Now, granted, there's a ton of talent in um, in Texas, but, you know, you've got kind of the big four, get their pick of the litter, you know, Texas, Texas Tech, Texas A&M. You know, TCU's been on the rise the last couple of years. You know, SMU had a run of bowl games there A while back so they're kind of towards the the bottom of the totem pole and then they just didn't have much to work with logistically for a number of years they played in probably the worst stadium in college football in fouts field um, for a number of years it was built in the 50s they finally replaced it in 2011 when they opened a really beautiful new stadium called apogee stadium here in denton that they spent you know 78 million dollars on that really helped matters a little bit but now they're just trying to overcome the history of, you know, just not being very good and, uh, you know, not having much of a football culture at the school. You know, they've only had the one winning season since 2004. 2004 is a little into their bowl run there. And then since then, you know, they've had that one winning season in 2013. But you look back through the history and you see a lot of one and two and three win seasons in there. And that has really made it tough
2: to kind of build the thing back up. So, Brett, bring us up to speed on the current state of the team. We know that there were, I think, at least 10 transfer players that came in to fill some gaps in an attempt from from Luttrell to improve the roster from last year to this year. What's the current state? Who are some of the impact players? Uh, we know that you've got one sort of preseason consensus uh, all-conference guy in, in your safety, but kind of give us the overview of the roster.
4: Well, the problem with the roster is over the years, North Texas had a couple of classes where a lot of the players didn't pan out, especially late in the McCartney era. And at this point, they're playing with about 67, 68 scholarship players. They're they're just above 1AA level in the scholarship players on the roster. And that's their big challenge is, you know, yeah, they've got some talent problems, some talent deficiencies there as compared to the rest of the con- as the, rest of the conference. But, you know, playing with that few scholarship players really puts you behind the eight ball. And uh, that's one of their real big problems at this point. And that's the reason why they took so many transfers over the summer. Latrell came in, he looked at what he had and said, you know, we don't have enough here to win. And he went out and got as creative as he could. He took a lot of uh, a lot of junior college transfers, some of whom look like they will will pan out really well, including Josh Wheeler. Um, they rolled the dice on a few high risk JUCO kids that didn't make it, which kind of hurt their cause a little bit. And then they, you know, they even went to the to the point to Belusher to call, you know, a couple of players. So they took a couple of players that arrived at the schools walk ons that they plan on putting on scholarship in their next class. So they can backdate those kids a little bit. So they got a little creative in the roster to kind of get to where they are now. They do have some talent. You mentioned Keyshawn McLean. He's a really good player. Um, he was a safety. They signed out of East Texas. His partner back there, James Gray, is another good player. Those both those guys finished with more than 100 tackle 100 tackles last year. Keyshawn had 110. James had 104, which is part of their problem. You know, all those guys were making the tackles in the back end, and you know, so they've just kind of They've got some talent here and there. Uh, they just don't have a lot of depth, and they've got some problem areas, you know, including their offensive line and different spots
2: like that. So much like the Gators, you've had a lot of quarterback problems there, I think four new quarterbacks in the past two seasons. You had an Alabama transfer in Alec Morris, who's a fifth-year guy, came on the roster. We know that in your preview, you had said that he was sort of the bold prediction. He needs to play well. He needs to be good. And in game two last week against Bethune-Cookman, true freshman Mason Fine got the nod ahead of him. What's the update on that situation? And, and, and how or why do you think Alec Morris is, is essentially not lived up to the, the hope?
4: Well, I mean, you know, he comes in in a tough spot. Alec was a fifth-year senior transfer guy looking for somewhere where he can go play. He's from Allen, which is right up the road. So he decides to come home. It it made a lot of sense on paper because North, Te- North Texas had to find somebody to to uh, plug into the quarterback spot because they lost both their guys last year who played. Neither of them were very good. Well, one graduated, one left the program in the offseason, so you got nothing. So Latrell looks around, and he's desperate to find somebody he can plug in there right away. He ended up taking a group of guys. He took Morris, who on paper you think, okay, this guy makes a hell of a lot of sense to plug in here. He's going to play that one year, and then you go, you find your future. The other thing that they did was they signed another junior college kid named David O'Hara, and then they signed a – they rolled the dice on a quarterback out of Oklahoma who a lot of people kind of took a gander at named Mason Fine. He was a kid that put up ridiculous numbers in Oklahoma. He was the two-time Gatorade player of the year in Oklahoma. He threw for, you know, like 13,000 yards in his career – uh, he put up ridiculous stats. The problem was, is he played at this this school called Locust Grove, which was this tiny little school that didn't play very good competition. And he's five eleven and 170 pounds. You know, not a lot of schools like Oklahoma or Oklahoma State or Tulsa are gonna take a are gonna roll the dice on a kid with that kind of size. North Texas decided he was worth the risk. He was a kid that threw, like I said, threw for thirteen thousand yards in high school, one hundred and sixty six touchdown passes. My expectation was they would bring him in and redshirt him, sit him down, and let him develop a little bit. Well, Morris had a kind of an uneven game against SMU. They you know, he threw two touchdowns, threw three interceptions, including a couple of bad ones. They bring Mason off the bench in the fourth quarter, and they immediately go eighty yards for a touchdown against SMU's backups. I thought maybe they would play them both, which is what coach kept saying, oh, we burned his redshirt, now we're going to play them both. The surprise was that he decided to go and roll him out there as the starter. And then he played a he played a really good game against Bethune-Cookman, didn't put a big stats, but he really managed the game well, made good decisions, and now it looks like he's pretty much the future at this point, although I'm expecting to play both players.
1: Let's turn and take a look at this weekend. What would you say would be successful for North Texas this weekend?
4: To get out of there without losing... A bunch of key starters. That's the whole thing. If you're if you're a mid-major team like this, I mean, I've seen this over the years with a lot of different teams. The problem is, is you come out of those games against SEC level teams, and you you know you throw those kids want to win those games, and they really look forward to those games. But you throw your heart, and your soul into those things, and a lot of times you come home with three or four key players who are just absolutely beat to a pulp. You lose a couple of guys to you know, cracked ribs, sprained ankle, whatever. You lose a few of those guys, and it's hard to recover from. If you look back last year, North Texas played one of its best games of the year. They go to Tennessee on the road against an SEC team. They played really well. They lose 24 to nothing. Well, the next week they turn around in a conference game to go play Middle Tennessee, which is a bowl team last year. They lose 41 to 7, and it wasn't that close. So, I mean, you kind of see the impact of those of those games. You know, so if you're North Texas, what you hope is you show some positive signs and then you get out of there without losing two or three of your key guys.
2: Do you think this North Texas team is excited to come and play in the Swamp? Obviously, they had some experience last year, like you said, playing at Tennessee and Neyland. Is this a game that excites the players to experience the atmosphere, or are they sort of thinking it's something they have to get through to then get on with their real schedule?
4: You know, I've asked that over the years of all of all kinds of generations of North Texas players, and universally, what these what all those players will tell you is they really look forward to playing these games because you got to remember these kids. You know, to be perfectly honest, you know they didn't grow up dreaming I want to play for North Texas. They grew up. They wanted to play for Texas. They wanted to play for Oklahoma. They wanted to play for A and M. They wanted to go play in the SEC or the Big Twelve or whatever. And you know, and their dream didn't quite come true they didn't get to go play at those big schools but they get the opportunity when North Texas goes to an SEC school like Florida to play in that big venue and not play in front of 24,000 or 15,000 they get to go play in that huge stadium where they always envision playing and those kids look forward to it universally I've never heard of, had a had i I've never asked that question to a North Texas player it has said, man I really I just hope we come home healthy you know I've never heard that from them they're all excited
2: about it In the way too early category to ask this question, but nonetheless, let's let's put you on the hot seat. What do you think thus far of Seth Luttrell's performance, and do you think he can turn North Texas around? He's got as good a chance as anybody.
4: I think he's got more to work with. I think that's a real key element of the whole thing. Is you know before North Texas, when some of these other coaches came in, they didn't have the new stadium, Uh, they weren't in Conference USA, or you know there were other factors that maybe we're an impediment to them being successful now north he comes in he's got a brand new athletic director he's got the apogee stadium is still pretty new he's in conference usa um he's got more financially to work with in terms of hiring and retaining assistant coaches which is a problem back in the early 2000s when north texas would go to a bowl game and then half of its staff get hired away the next year you know, I think he's got a really good chance to be successful. And he seems to have done all the right things since he's got here. He's said all the right things. He's tried to get out in Texas to try to recruit this this region and has done a pretty good job. I mean, it's hard to recruit in North Texas, let's be honest, just because of the, the other schools in the region and who comes in. Everybody flies into DFW and goes and grabs a few guys. It's one of the most heavily recruited areas in the country. But he's gotten some good players, including Fine, Including some other freshmen that seem to be playing well this year, and I think he's got an opportunity. It's just going to be a matter of if he can, if he can get to the point where he can, uh, you know, compete and win against the Louisiana Techs and the Middle Tennessees and the, you know, those types of schools that are typically at the top of Conference USA.
1: Okay, you've seen a couple of games. You predicted them to go four and eight this season. Would you hold on to that prediction?
4: I don't know, man. When I put that that prediction out every year, I always tend to be—I try to be a little optimistic. I don't want to be the guy that picks them to go like one and eleven or something like that, um, you know. But they did win the game they had to win. So I mean, I'm gonna—I'm not gonna back off of it now. And but I'm telling you, getting to four and eight is gonna be awfully tough. You know, the Rice looks winnable, but that's on the road. Florida's a tough game. Marshall and Middle Tennessee. The big problem is is that North Texas' crossover schedule, Conference USA is split in half. So you, you play the your opponents on your side, and then you play three from the other side. Well, North Texas drew the three best teams from the East. They drew Marshall, Middle Tennessee, and Western Kentucky. And you saw what Western Kentucky did against Alabama. So, I mean, getting to four and eight is going to be awfully tough. But if they can manage to beat Rice, beat UTSA, and then, you know, Maybe get Army or UTEP. I mean, there you go. You're at 4-8. So I'm not going to back off of it. I'm just not saying that it's going to be super easy. They're not going to coast to 4-8. That's for sure.
1: Well, how about this Saturday? Give us a prediction. Uh, who? Do you, well, I assume you're going to say the Gators are going to win. Give us a score. How do you think the game's going to go?
4: You know, I haven't picked a score yet, but that's a good question. Off the top of my head, you know, maybe 42-17, to 17, something, in, something in that range. You know, I, I think Florida's favored by, what, 35?
2: Right.
4: Yep. I think you know. I think maybe North Texas can cover that. I mean, you would hope so. You, maybe you catch Florida looking ahead because I think they have what Tennessee next week. I think I wrote that. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So they have Tennessee next week. So you think, okay, well, maybe Florida's looking ahead a little bit. Maybe North Texas kind of found it a little bit last week against the thin Cookman, and you kind of hope that that they can, uh, you know, make it a little make it competitive like they did a few years ago when they. Uh, really put a scare into Georgia for Georgia rally. But that'd be about what I would guess.
2: Well, Brett, thanks so much for joining us today. You've certainly enhanced our level of knowledge on North Texas. Uh, We wish you the best for this week and for the rest of the season.
4: All right, guys. Well, maybe I'll see you down there and have a good day.
1: All right, James, let's close out this pod here. Give me your key observation from last weekend.
2: Coaching fail, Nichols State versus Georgia. It was a game that Georgia could have easily lost. They wound up winning 26-24. Nichols State takes the lead in the third quarter, 14-13, behind a, a freshman who kind of got hot in the game in Chase Forcade. Then Georgia scores a bomb from Jacob Eason, who looked very pedestrian in the game to take the lead 20-14. So you expect, okay, the quarterback that's played every single snap is going to come back out. El Contrere, Nichols State decides to play their backup quarterback, who's a running quarterback. He promptly fumbles on his second touch of the game, to which Georgia returns it to the house, to then take the lead, 26-14. Back in the game comes Chase Forcade, they get a field goal, stop Georgia, another possession, they get a touchdown, wind up lose the game 26-24. The coach, when asked why he did this, it was, quote, part of the game plan to get both guys playing time. Okay, I'm sorry, you expect to get blown out by Georgia, but when you're winning the game and this guy is hot, you then take him out when you're going tit-for-tat with Georgia on the road? Inexplicable coaching fail of the week. Instead of being a story everyone's talking about, it's sort of blip on the radar and it's like, oh, Georgia played bad but escaped. Couldn't believe it when I saw it. So that's my coaching fail observation of the week. It kind of makes me mad just thinking about how he ruined a chance for Nickel State to kind of cement themselves in the history book.
1: What about you? When I got home from the swamp watching Arkansas TCU, really fun game, I was super impressed with Austin Allen, Brandon Allen's little brother, the former Arkansas quarterback. He was making all kind of throws on the field, looked really dangerous. And, I mean, Arkansas is known as a run-heavy team, but he looked excellent. And I didn't see the whole game, but that was like, hmm, that's going to be a little challenge for the Gators down the road when they're at Arkansas. So we'll have to see how that plays out. And a team that seemingly always plays overtime is Arkansas. The zaniest,
2: most insane games. You just, if you're an Arkansas fan, you expect it. Craziness. So super fun. Make sure you watch Arkansas throughout the year. Virtually every game is like that. <laughs> I love them. SEC action outside of Arkansas.
1: Yeah, and some interesting games. Uh, what did you take away from that USC game? South Carolina, I mean, in this instance. Yeah,
2: I was going to say other USC won against the Cupcake. But... uh, <laughs> what I took away from it is that I'm so thankful I don't have to watch Will Muschamp on the sidelines. Like Every time I look at his face, it, it makes me sad and angry because, one, he's a nice guy, and, two, because it's the most mind-numbing offense to watch. And, oh, guess what? It hasn't changed at all. They're mainly playing a quarterback who can't throw the ball at all, and they run the zone read a million times a game, and it's painful. And they got m- smashed
1: by a Mississippi State team that lost at home the week before. Ugly, ugly stuff. Yeah, really bad. The other, maybe the most notable game on the schedule of a week slate was Tennessee Virginia Tech close early Tennessee pulled away late. My main takeaway was that that was really cool. They had that game. I don't know if that's repeatable to get that many people in the stadium again, but 150 thousand plus. Pretty nuts definitely a spectacle, and also Virginia Tech gave that game
2: yes. to Tennessee. Like, Tennessee has done nothing to prove to me that they are any good at football. 91 yards passing from Dobbs, the guy cannot throw the ball at all. Looking forward um, to that. Five turnovers, I believe it was four or five. All of them, I think, fumbles with the exception of maybe one just gifts. Two of them were unforced, just drops oh, yeah. on the ground. And Vautech was still in that game. So, so far, if you're a Tennessee fan. You have got to be worried. Dobbs just cannot throw the ball at all. So that's my main observation from that game is that, hey, so far so good for Gator fans. It looks like a very winnable
1: game. And then a typical thing may be Alabama. Nick Saban going on a rant despite his team winning comfortably. Well, if you haven't seen it, make sure you pull up the quick shot of Nick Saban
2: laying the wood to Lane Kiffin when they're winning by four touchdowns and... I think they fumbled the ball. Is that what happens? It it was like a bad exchange or it was a bad play. Whatever it was, he was so mad that Lane called that play that he's laying the wood. And afterwards they asked Nick Saban, which is this is like one of my favorite Nick Saban quotes now, and they said, Hey, what was the conversation that you and Lane Kiffin got in on the sideline? And he with a stern face, it wasn't a conversation, it was an ass chewing. (laughs) <laughs> Which is easily the best quarter of the week. <laughs> Dead faced, completely serious. That was not a conversation. That was a coach laying the wood to his offensive coordinator. So, just entertaining times around the That's,
1: SEC. Yeah, you know, it must be yeah. super fun to work for Nick Saban. Sounds like such a joy.
2: Yeah, I know. Oh, by the way, LSU's got a new quarterback. They finally brunched Brandon Harris as they struggled with Jacksonville State. So the SEC not looking very impressive thus far. Even though they got a bunch of wins last week, but. Let's turn our attention to maybe some teams that we think will be impressive when it matters, which is at the end of the season. Let's make some college football championship series predictions. Let's start one at a time. We'll do alternate shot format. You go first, and I'll give you a team. You give me a team.
1: Okay, well, I got to go with my boys after they had that huge win over Oklahoma, and they're not going to play anybody too tough for a while. But I think as long as Oklahoma plays well and Oklahoma plays a pretty big game this weekend – I'm going to go ahead with the Cougs, Houston. I like it. I was hoping you'd pick the Cougs.
2: You need to ride that team all the way. And and as a counter punch to your team, I'm going to pick the team they'll play, Louisville. Because I am all on the Lamar Jackson train. I mean, I am driving that bus. And so that's going to be an epic game, assuming both teams can remain undefeated. It's towards the end of the season. Of course, Louisville has a very, very big game
1: coming up this weekend. Against my pick, and I hate to pick it, but FSU... This is more of an anti-Clemson pick at this point in the season. They've looked pretty rough against what I think will be a mediocre Auburn team, and they struggled against Troy this week, kind of confirming some of our suspicions about them in week one. So I, I don't see anybody else, maybe other than Louisville, that's going to challenge FSU inside the ACC. Yeah, Clemson
2: has not looked good, and, and this is going to be weird because I'm also picking FSU.
1: Boo to us. So you
2: say, how, how does this happen? How can you pick both Louisville and FSU? Uh, one of them's gonna lose, but obviously, I think that it's probably better. It's definitely better if FSU loses this game. For my predictions, I don't want FSU to make one lose every single game. But I've got so far, Louisville and
1: FSU, and you so far have Houston and FSU. Who's your third team? Well, it's hard to pick against them. I think you have to pick them literally every year, and that's Alabama. You know, big surprise, but there we go. Yeah, you're kind of just foolish for not picking Alabama. So I also have Alabama. Not a surprise there. Now, who's your
2: fourth Who's your fourth team? I can't wait to hear this one.
1: Well, this is a team I've been pretty high on all year, even from our season preview. And that's mostly a vote of confidence in Jim Harbaugh, and that's Michigan. So I sold this team at their current ranking before the season, Michigan.
2: And now I'm putting them in my Final Four predictions. And this has nothing to do with how they played through the first two games. But if you look through the schedule, Ohio State and Michigan both have The world's most dreamy cupcake schedule that you can almost imagine for a power school. And look, Florida's schedule is looking pretty nice too, but we still harder than those two. I almost want to flip a coin between the two of them, but I just think Urban Meyer's team has way too many new faces by the end of the season to beat Michigan. Then again, they smashed Michigan last year, so I'm not super confident with this pick of Michigan, But I'll jump on the hardball train. I'm probably in the caboose being pulled along, but I'm there. So that means our final four picks are essentially all the same. Florida State, Alabama, Michigan, with the only difference between me taking Petrino, who's a total classless guy, and you taking a much more classy guy.
1: My man, Tom Herman. And
2: Tom Herman. So there we go. We've made four picks each, and three are the same, and one is different. I'm sure they'll all be wrong. And I can't wait to see if even one of them is right. Hopefully most
1: of them are. I would love to see a playoff without FSU and Alabama. And
2: for JT Raymond... We'll speak in front of him. Florida is in the playoff, so you heard JT earlier; he's in, he's in his 14 playoff. I can confirm that. So for those of you that out there that have Florida in there, you are well represented by JT Alan and I. Do not have such faith at this point in time. And with that, we're going to close out the episode. We're excited about watching the game this week. Uh, it's going to be fun to watch what the Gators can accomplish coming off a really satisfying win against Kentucky. We will be back with you next week, same time. Same channel. You can always catch us on iTunes or Stitcher. Subscribe to the show. Drop us a like on Facebook. Drop us a review on iTunes or Stitchers. That's always great. We love hearing your feedback. You can hit us up on Facebook anytime. We'll respond back as quickly as humanly possible. As always, guys, thanks for listening. We love doing the show. Love having you gain more knowledge than you have when you started.